Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This is most certainly true. Jesus is alive and death is dead. His tomb is empty and our hearts are full. His promises are fulfilled. The victory has been won. Easter brings fullness and life and joy and meaning and hope into our lives and brings them in fullest measure. Our songs of Alleluia will never end. Join us to worship our risen Lord with this Easter sermon recently delivered at Grace. The second reading from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the Grand Resurrection chapter, chapter 15. This portion of Scripture is the basis for the sermon today. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Christ is risen. Don't forget to take your pictures today. Easter is a perfect time to take pictures. Individuals, family members are all dressed up in their Easter best. You can snap a picture and post it on social media to share an Easter greeting with all of your online friends. You could... Save a picture like this for your Christmas card coming later on this year. Maybe even a nice enough one could be printed and framed and hung on your wall. There's lots of reasons why Easter is a good time to take a picture. But deciding when to take a picture is only half the battle. Then you have to decide where. Maybe in between services today, you'll come up and snap a picture in front of the banner, cross some of the flowers we have adorning our sanctuary today. If you make your way over to Easter breakfast, there's a photo booth in the corner, a lovely backdrop that says, stand here, take your picture here. Well, it actually says he is risen, but it also says, stand here. We'll do all the work of setting up the backdrop for you 
this would be a great place to take your picture. A beautiful day like today, maybe you'd want to take a picture outside, but then that brings in another host of decisions that need to be made. Where should you stand in relation to the sun? If you stand with the sun at the back of the people you're taking the picture of, then the picture gets saturated and the people show up kind of shadowy, dark. If you do a 180 from that and snap the picture towards the sun, then it's not going to work very well either. Then people are squinting, not giving the full eye of, of the joy that you'd like to see. There's a reason why people can make a living being a photographer. Because it's an art. To make a picture look nice, to, to have it all centered and situated properly so that it will be attractive when it's developed or, or when you look on the screen. It's an art to take a picture, and a big part of that art is knowing the right places to stand. The Apostle Paul was not a professional photographer, but he knew where to stand. He knew right where to stand, and he encouraged his friends in the church in Corinth as much. And now through the miracle of inspiration on this Easter day, he encourages us all the same. There's no better place to stand than on Christ and on his resurrection from the dead. Where do you stand? That's a question that I get asked pretty often. Maybe you are asked that question as well. People want to get to know you, to get to know your opinions. They want to get a feel for your worldview, and so they ask, where do you stand? Where do you stand on using taxpayer dollars to fund scientific research? Where do you stand on converting four-way stop sign intersections into roundabouts to make traffic flow easier? Where do you stand on the new rules in Major League Baseball? The beauty of questions like this is it really doesn't matter where you stand. These are matters of opinion, and you are free to stand over there, and someone else might stand here. There's lots of people that are standing somewhere in the middle. It's all subjective. There's no wrong answer. But there's a question today that we must consider, and it's entirely different. Where do you stand before God? That's entirely different because this is not a subjective matter of opinion, but rather there is an objective truth. Your opinions don't move the needle one inch in that direction or in that. Maybe you feel like you've lived a, a pretty good life. Maybe you feel like you have earned some standing before God. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you shudder at the thought of God knowing your mind and heart. No matter what it is that your opinion about your standing before God is, the objective truth is this, that we are all by nature sinful and deserve only God's wrath and punishment. God gives us his holy law, his standards by which we must live, and his standards are, are high. He demands perfection. 
perfection in thought, perfection in word, perfection in deed. And we can't pass the test. Like a kindergartner taking a calculus test, we are doomed to fail. The psalmist asks a pertinent question of God in Psalm 130. He says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Not you, not me, not anyone. None of us could stand up to God's demands of perfection. None of us could live the type of life that God demands that we live. None of us could have a standing before God or dwell for a moment in his presence. On our own, we don't have a relationship with God and we never could make one up. We couldn't stand before God here on earth and for sure have no standing with God in eternity. Instead, we're doomed to an eternity in hell. Yet that is precisely why our Savior Jesus came. He knew that we couldn't stand up before God, and so he stood up. He stood up from his throne in heaven and came down to our earth. He stood up so that he could make himself small, taking on the nature of a servant. He stood up and willingly came to the world that he created, the one who planted the universe and stretched it out and himself fills it with his presence, was willing to be confined into the womb of a virgin. The one who has wisdom and life had to learn how to live, how to stand, how to walk. The one who is the word of God had to be taught how to speak. Christ Jesus humbled himself and willingly came to stand in a place that he never should have had to stand in your place and mine. He stood under the law to redeem those under the law. He stood there in our place and kept God's law for us. Yet maybe even more remarkably than that is the fact that Jesus was willing to stand in our place of punishment. When it came time for consequences to be doled out, when it came time to give an accounting for our faults and our failures, then Jesus stood in our place too. He stood in our place to the jeering and the jabbing of those who hated him. He stood up to the thorns and the whips. He stood up to the false arrest and the false accusations. He stood till quite literally he couldn't stand anymore. Yet that's not even the worst place that Jesus stood. He stood to save you from having to do it. He stood in the presence of a righteous God. He stood in God's courtroom, not as the judge, but as the defendant as the accused, as the one who is guilty of your sins and my sins and the sins of the world, there he endured the wrath of God's anger. There he allowed the sentence that should have been ours to come down on his record. Jesus knew that the wages of sin is death. Jesus knew that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Yet he stood. That's why he stood. 
and lived and suffered and died so that we could be forgiven. But Jesus would stand again. Three days later, he stood up in victory over sin and death. That's the glory of Easter. That's the pinnacle of the Christian life. That's the gospel good news that we celebrate today and throughout our lives. That's the encouragement that the Apostle Paul wanted to give his friends in the church in Corinth, and that's our Easter joy today. Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There's not one single truth in your life that is more important, not one single thing that is more valuable in your life than these truths. You won't find something more important in a fireproof safe in your home or a safe deposit box in your bank. You won't find information more vital or pertinent or impactful in your life, not on a birth certificate, not on a social security card, not on a marriage certificate, than these words, which are of first importance. And it's not even close. Not even a close race. You can't even see second place. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The price for your sins and mine has been paid. Our debt has been satisfied. It is finished. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus endured death so that death could be defeated. The Scriptures foretold this mighty victory. God had promised that it would happen from long ago. Jesus had announced that it would be true. It's the victory that the devil feared the most. Jesus is alive. And this pinnacle of our Christian faith, this matter of utmost first importance, is not something that happened in secret. Jesus rose in victory from the grave and he wanted the world to know. And so he appeared to many, many people to announce his peace to them and to allow them to plant their eyes on him, the living proof that Jesus rose in victory from the dead. Paul cataloged a few of those post-Easter appearances. Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. If you're wondering if Jesus is standing for you, look no further than the example that the Apostle Paul sets in himself. He describes himself as one abnormally born. What a strange way to become a member of God's family, to pursue and persecute anyone who believes in a risen Christ. To torture and torment anyone who celebrated Easter. But that's Paul's backstory. And God chose him nonetheless. You see, being a Christian, being adopted into God's family, it's not about earning God's favor. It's not about being a likely candidate for faith. It's not about doing enough good things. It's about 
grace. God's undeserved love. It's not about how well you can stand, but about who is standing for you. That's why Paul gives this encouragement. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now there's a statement to live by. By the grace of God, by his undeserved love, I am what I am, and I stand where I stand. By the grace of God, I stand as a redeemed child of God. By the grace of God, I stand as one whom he loves, as an heir of everlasting life. By God's limitless mercy and grace, I stand on an empty tomb with eyes open to see, with a heart that knows what this means, that sin can't harm me anymore, that the devil has been toppled, that death has been put in its place. By the grace of God, I know that not even death can knock me down. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, was both for you. Because of Jesus' resurrection, you too will rise. Because Jesus stood in victory over a grave, so will you one day with Paul and with Christians who have lived and died in faith. There together we will taunt death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And Paul explains why we can diss death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the very last verse of this great resurrection chapter, Paul sums it up and brings it home into our hearts and our lives. He says, Therefore, A big flashing arrow that points backwards into the entirety of this great resurrection chapter and all of the comfort that it contains. Therefore, because Jesus rose from the dead, you too will rise. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Paul begins this resurrection chapter And he ends it in the same way. There's no better place for you to stand than on Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. There's no better place for you to stand than on the rock of our salvation. And now with this rock-solid foundation and with salvation secured, now we know that nothing will move us. King David wrote in the psalm that was sung earlier, Psalm 16, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So when the wind and waves of hardship and trial bombard us, when the assaulting arrows of temptation are hurled in our direction, when the devil's deceptions are coming fast and furious, where will we turn? How will we find our security? There's no better place to stand than on Easter triumph 
and Easter joy. Easter victory won by Jesus and given to us. When the devil's accusations come our way, when the weight of a burdened conscience has us pinned to the floor, when life in this world has us paralyzed in fear, what will you do? How will you overcome? There's no better place to stand than on Jesus, than on a living and victorious Savior. Let Jesus be your strength and shield. Let him be your hope and your life. And while you are standing there on an empty tomb and rejoicing in what it means for you, don't forget to share that hope with others. If that's the best place for you to stand, then that means it's the best place for others to stand as well. Share your Easter joy so that others might too believe. Share the message of sins forgiven so that those in your world can be free. Point others to the one who is standing for them so that they can stand with you and with Jesus here on earth and forever in heaven. My friends, this Easter and every day, stand. Stand firmly on Jesus. Let him bring you the peace, joy, and confidence that he intends to give. Knowing that death has been defeated. Knowing that everlasting life is yours in his name. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. So with Paul and with the Corinthians, with the church on earth and the church in heaven, those who have reached the finish line before us and today are experiencing the utmost in resurrection glory, together with all whom our God has chosen, let's stand up. Stand up on Jesus and on his resurrection from the dead. There's no better place to stand. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace, to support the work that we do to proclaim the love of Jesus in Milwaukee and around the world, and to find our schedule of special worship services, please visit www.gracedowntown.org today. And we'd love to have you join us for worship sometime soon. This grace is for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace.